2023 coming to an end, I want to take a moment and send out a massive thank you for an incredible year. Your listens, shares, and feedback have transformed this podcast journey into something truly extraordinary. But our adventure is far from over, and as we gear up for 2024, I'm on a mission to grow 50 Words for Murder to be even bigger and better. So if you haven't already done so, please do me a solid and consider smashing that follow button. That'll help me out a ton and make sure that you don't miss a single episode of exciting content. And believe me when I tell you, we have some awesome stuff coming up in 2024. Your ongoing support not only means the world to me, but also fuels our mission to reach new heights in the coming year. Now sit back and enjoy this fascinating episode of 50 Words for Murder. Welcome to 50 Words for Murder, where we delve into the stories behind the headlines. I'm your host, Justin. Today, I have a special guest who has been with us before, uh, Mark Crowley, who was on the Tupac episode, which I'm going to still say, the date that I'm recording this episode now, the Tupac one is still my favorite episode that I've ever done. So welcome back to the show, Mark. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Well, today's topic, because it is December, I figured we should make it a little bit lighter. We are still going to talk about murder, of course, but we're going to talk about one that's maybe not as heavy. And before I get into that, though, I have a shameless plug that I have to do, okay? So for a lot of y'all who who may or may not know, I recently wrote a children's book called Boundaries. And you can order it through my Shopify uh, shop or my website, just on TikTok.com. I will put a link as well as a discount code in the description of this podcast. But basically, 26% of millennials and Gen Z are no contact with a family member. And this book is to help navigate those conversations with your children when they ask why there might be empty seats at the table or why they don't see people um, and some of the people in your family. It also then teaches them the importance of having boundaries within that family unit. So if you want to pick up a copy, it's a great book. Um, it is out. And yeah, look in the description. So now that that's out of the way, we're going to be talking about a 53 hundred year old murder that they kind of solved right they kind of solved it and or they believe they have an idea and this is for and i guess we should put a disclaimer here etsy otzi the ice man there are amongst other as mark said other discrepancies with this his name pronunciation is one of them but it's basically to refer to the area of the alps that he was found um do you want to add anything to that or um i mean it's a true cold case we got here justin Iceman, okay, yeah, so 5,300 years old. I feel like we need, I feel like we need a drum roll like a, on that, but um, yeah, he was found literally frozen in ice and that's why it is a cold case. Uh, basically what happened in 1991, he, while hikers were hiking, they discovered this guy kind of sitting out and then from there it, uh, it came into a, dis a border dispute with Italy and Germany trying to figure out who he belonged to. And I believe ultimately they determined that it was Italy. It was like by like a, by like a few meters too. It wasn't even by very much. It was like right on the border. Um, they determined that he immigrated from, is it, it's Turkey, but it was what Anatolia back then. Yeah, Anatolia meaning like Eastern Turkey in the more mountainous Eastern region. Turkey. Rather than like okay. Western Turkey, where it's, you know, Mediterranean, Aegean, coastal. Yeah, well, they believe that he was, he came in one of the, the last waves of those people who started bringing farming and stuff to that land about five, or sorry, 8,000 years prior. So um, 
when the body was extracted and salvaged, whatever they want to say, uh, it was transported to the office of the medical examiner and together with other objects that they found nearby, you know, they were able to kind of examine and figure out what was going on. So uh, he was there. At, he wasn't examined by a coroner. He was examined by an archaeologist because, you know, but he was, I think this is important to mention, he was a wet mummy. Not so that's not like when you think of a mummy, it's not like the like the mummies you think of like in ancient Egypt where they're all dried out and you know preserved that way. This is a guy who was preserved in ice. He had the contents of what he ate fifty three hundred years ago still in his stomach. Yeah, the European mummies you get like the uh, mostly are in peat bogs in northern Europe, where you find around the UK and and northern Europe. But yeah, that you can either preserve the tissue by keeping it totally dry or by keeping it moist. What I found was interesting is apparently it was two German hikers who found Utzi and they thought it was a recently deceased hiker. That it was preserved. Oh, I didn't well know that. Enough that they weren't sure who to contact. And it wasn't until the, you know second or third people examining it that they found, oh, this isn't some recent missing person. This is a very, very old missing person. Yeah. Which I did just not know that. goes to the, you know, the state of preservation. I did not know that. So let's give, since we're giving facts, let's give a few like little rundowns. He's believed to have been born around 3275 BC. So like 3200 years before Christ, um, he was. It looks like they believe he was uh, born near the present. Did they find it here? It's saying born thirty-two seventy-five near the present village of Feldthorns uh, or Velturno, north of uh, Bolzano, Italy. I don't know how they would know where he was born, but I know a lot of. There's a lot of studies uh, that are the. They actually sequenced his full genome he's one of the oldest humans that we have a full sequence genome on because they even found intact blood cells but a lot of it was analysis specifically of pollen like where of the pollen that was both in his stomach and on his clothes that then they could find where he had lived okay well that lived but uh, yeah but not necessarily born Anyways, I don't know, but maybe with the full sequence, you know, they could figure that out. I have no idea. Also, the a lot of this evidence seems to suggest that this was a pretty isolated, you know, shepherding, herding community in the mountains. So I don't think he probably ever traveled all that far, That's which, fair. as we'll get to yeah, later, makes one thing he was carrying even more interesting. I think, yeah, I agree. And I know what you're, I know what you're talking about. Well, and he believed, he's believed to have died around the age of 45 in the year 3230 BC. So born in 3275, roughly, roughly died in 3230. And it was in the, um, Alps, which is how he got his name. And that's, uh, on the border between, sorry, I said Germany, Austria and Italy. Uh, there's other, a bunch of other little pseudonyms for him. He was, He's the oldest natural mummy of the Copper Age. Um, he is, he was five foot three. People weren't very tall back then, I don't think, but uh, he was five foot three. And he was discovered September 19th, 1991, between those borders. And it was the first time they had found anything like this. 
Now, we'll go ahead and give you a, I guess, a preview into this a little early on, but there was a presence of an arrowhead embedded in his left shoulder and various other wounds, so it is believed that he was murdered. Um, now, the nature of his life, we'll go ahead and say this, the nature of his life and circumstances of his death are subject to a lot of investigation, a lot of speculations, and really every few months to year or so, something new comes out. In fact, pretty recently they did the full sequencing i believe and they were yeah, able to in 2023 2023 yeah so they were initially able to kind of figure out what he so you can go you can google this and see pictures of what he looks like when he was found he is being preserved in a like an ice vault like a frozen vault um but they have made 3d renderings of him so that it's exact and you can they can study him without you know worrying about damaging the mummy itself uh, but they were also able to, by doing the, the DNA sequencing, the, gen, the no, genome sequencing, they were able to basically create what he looked like. Uh, the only thing that they discovered, I think they discovered this, this year, is that they believe his melanin and his skin was, melanin, sorry, not melanin, melanin and his skin was darker than what previously believed. That Initially, they believed that he was probably more fair skin, uh, lighter hair kind of thing but they figured he's darker skinned with darker hair so you know we we always love to put the european look on on people of those days but like, well that's also like jesus part of where his his heritage was that they were assuming he was more closely related to western europeans of his time where the the genome sequencing proved that he was more of that anatolian sorry i got to let this cat out. We have a cat. We have a cat on here. And while while he's doing that, so we, we're just and we're not even gonna edit that out on this one. We're just because you know this one's a lot lighter. It's you know, Christmas is coming up, holidays coming up. Um, but anybody, if you happen to be uh you know, over in Europe in Bolzano, South Tyrol, Italy, you can go and see his remains and personal belongings as that is where they are on exhibit, which I think would be a really you were just in Italy, right? I mean, just in Italy as in almost I feel a like year it was ago. this year. Oh, I felt like it was, it was last three months ago. Okay, well, next time y'all do that, y'all should go here. Uh, Maybe. I don't know where, I I don't mean, know where this is. On another Italy. Italy trip, yes. Not, not this one, obviously. You already went yeah. to Italy. Yeah. Oh, I was just saying on a, like, a personal one, I'd like to. I don't mm. think. Just yeah. for okay. you guys, I teach latin and i took a group of students to italy last spring and so there we were kind of hitting the the high frequency big a-list sites um and sorry for the interruption earlier cat's gonna cat was meowing to get yeah. in and so he was hanging out with me and then you know decided he wanted to meow to get out so yeah it happens it's okay so they he was when initially found back in 1991, he was dated to um, be at least 4,000 years old. And that was on the basis of, um, you know, certain items that were found on him, like a, an axe, uh, for example, was one of the retrieved objects. And um, we're going to just go ahead and say that that axe is foreshadowing for something we're going to talk about later. That axe is actually very important um, in, in why they think he's he was murdered. That's going to be the hint that I that I give you. Uh, they also took tissue samples from him and other accompanying materials. They were analyzed at several 
scientific institutions and the results concluded that the remains belonged to someone that lived between 3359 and 3105 or some 5,000 plus years ago. And then more specific estimates found that there was a 66% chance that he died between 3239 and 3105 BC. And then he gets into lower numbers. So those don't really matter. Then we mentioned a border dispute earlier as well. Um, basically, well, basically Austria and Italy fought about it. And like I said, it ended up being literally like, what was it? It was 90, 9,200, sorry, 92.56 meters, which is, because we're American, 101 yards, basically, inside Italian territory. So, I mean, like, barely, like, you could throw a, well, maybe not throw a rock, but a really good football player, a really good football player could get close. You get what I'm saying. Yeah, could get close. Yes. Could get close. I would say you could see it. Yeah. You could see the border. All right. That, That doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Um, for scientific analysis, he has been extensively examined, measured, X-rayed, and dated tissues and intestinal contents have been examined and microscopically examined microscopically, and as have the items found with the body. Um, in August of 04, uh, that's not they. Okay, so in, uh, to, this is kind of a weird link. In two, August of 04, frozen bodies of three Austria. Austro-Hungarian soldiers killed during the Battle of San Mateo, which is 1918, so World War uh, I, were found on the mountain of uh, Punta San Mateo in uh, Trentino. And one of the body was sent to, one of those bodies was sent to a museum in hope that the research on how that environment affected that body's preservation would also help um, unravel some of Etsy's past. Assuming that's how we pronounce it. So when they recovered him, We'll paint a picture for you guys here. He was half uncovered, face down in a pool of water with iced banks, um, still frozen in the glacier. And he was, like I said, five foot three, about 45 at the time of his death. Oh, his body was found. Sorry. He was about, he weighed 30 pounds, five ounces. Um, because the body was covered in ice shortly after his death, it had only partially deteriorated. And initial reports claimed that his genitals and most of his scrotum were missing so fun for him um this was and that was apparently later shown to be completely unfounded but this is where it gets really cool and you mentioned this earlier analysis of pollen dust grains and um, isotopic composition of his tooth enamel indicates that he spent his childhood this is how they figured out near the present of south tyrol village of feldthorns so they assume because he was a child there, based on the way his teeth grew which is crazy um and then later went to live in valleys about 50 kilometers, which is 31 miles north. Then in 2009, a CAT scan revealed that his stomach had shifted upwards to where his lower lung area would normally be. And now so the contents revealed partially digested remains. And so they knew, they knew what he ate of Ibex meat, confirmed DNA analysis suggesting that, it had, that he had a meal less than two hours before his death. Wheat grains were also found. It's believed that he most likely had a few slices of dried fatty meat, probably bacon, which came from a wild goat in southern Tyrol, in South Tyrol. And it also showed two meals. The last one consumed about eight hours before his death. The uh, One of Camoy's, Kim, I don't know, how's it, C-H-A-M-O-I-S, how do you say that? Uh, meat. 
Chamoy, Chamois. I don't know. Whatever. 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 French pronunciation or not. Yeah. Okay. Screw pronunciation. We've already thrown it out the window on this podcast. Uh, The, the, there was also red deer, herb red, both eaten with roots and fruits. Uh, the grain eaten with both meals was a highly processed um, einkorn, wheat bran. And it could have been very likely uh, eaten in the form of bread. So, I mean, this is, again, 5,300 years old. And we're able to pinpoint what he ate his last two meals and how long before his death based on digestion. Uh, there were also uh, grains, like I said, icorn, barley, seeds of flax and poppy were also discovered as well as kernels of sloes. And sloes, which I had never heard of before, are small plum-like fruits of the blackthorn tree. I don't even know what a blackthorn tree is. And then various seeds of berries that were growing in the wild. Um, hair analysis was used to examine his diet from several months before. Pollen in his first meal showed that it had been consumed um, in a mid-altitude conifer forest. And other pollens indicate the presence of wheat and legumes, which may have been domesticated crops. Because this, were, this was a farming community. And like you said, shepherding community. So they that's what they did. Pollen grains of hop hornbeam. I don't even, you know, here's the thing. I'm reading all this stuff and I have it written down. I don't even know what some of this stuff is. <laughs> but I guess it doesn't matter. Hornbeam um, is uh, like tall, skinny tree. Looks kind of like a champagne flute. I don't, this is why you're on. This is why I bring you on. Because you know this random shit. Like that nobody else knows. Like I feel like I'm a fairly intelligent individual. And then I, I put you on here and I'm like, I don't know anything. We're just going to leave it to Mark. <laughs> But, I almost planted some in my backyard. Uh, I don't know what it is, but um, there we go. Uh, the pond was very well preserved with cells inside remaining intact, indicating that it had been fresh, basically two hours at the two, two hours old at the time of his death, which places the event of his death in the spring or early summer. Uh, einkorn wheat is harvested in the late summer and slows in the autumn. These, and so they believe that, that would those particular items that he ate would have been stored from the previous year. The other thing that's interesting here is there were high levels of both copper particles and arsenic found in his hair. And this along with, here we're going to mention again, his copper axe blade, which is 99.7% pure copper, led scientists um, to believe that Etsy himself was involved in copper smelting. Then by examination of the proportions of his tibia, femur, and pelvis, it was postulated that his lifestyle included long walks over hilly terrain. This degree of mobility is not characteristic of other Copper Age Europeans and may indicate that he was a high-altitude shepherd. This is why it's crazy how they figure this stuff out. It's just insane. Then using modern 3D scanning technology, a facial reconstruction has been created for him. So like I said, you can you can Google it. And it shows him looking for looking old. Looking old for being only 45 years old, basically. But, you know, the Copper Age, that was a tough life back then. I think not even just the Copper I think anything back then was just a tough life. So at 45, he looked older. He had deep set brown eyes, a beard, furrowed face, and sunken cheeks. He was also, he's been depicted as looking tired and ungroomed, which is not, that's speculative, but probably fairly accurate. Grooming wasn't really a, grooming and hygiene wasn't really a thing, you know. They um, also found... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Hard counterpoint. Okay, hard the counterpoint. archaeological record going back to as, you know, early as we've got people being people, we have grooming implements. Okay, we do have grooming implements, but, you know, Queen Victoria once said, I'll take a bath once a month whether I need to or not. 
Yeah, because that's when people had gone back to being gross. Because when you're queen, you could be as gross as you want to be. But like most humans aren't gross. And when you've got nothing but like three possessions, you take a little more pride in your in yourself. All right. All right. Touche. I, I would I, I would counter that, you know, by modern standards, no, but well, that's grooming, what I'm referring grooming to. implements are some of the earliest and most common items found with ancient human. I get that, but it's still not, you know, like they weren't washing their hands every time they did something. Oh, no. So, okay. Yes, I guess well, judging by today's standards. If we're getting to, yeah. I, I don't want to just assume that, you know. Awesome. Yeah, we don't want to assume. We have, this, we have this image of, you know, like the Flintstones-y caveman and, you know, they're all wild and hairy, but even then. People groomed oh. themselves as necessary. Now we do know that Utsi was most uh, was already suffering from male pattern baldness, so may not have had quite as much hair to groom. Yeah, that's that's true. And let's talk. That's a good uh, segue into his health. So he was found with whipworm. Yep. Let's say this. He had it. He had an intestinal parasite. Uh, it was also observed during a CT scan uh, or CT scans that he had three or four of his right ribs had been cracked um, when he had been lying face down after death or where ice had possibly crushed his body. One of his fingernails of the two found shows three bowlines indicating that he was sick three times in the six months before he died. The last incident, two months before he died, lasted about two weeks. He was, it was also found that his epidermis, um, which is the, you know, your skin, uh, was missing the outer layer was missing and a natural process a natural process was mummification in ice basically his teeth showed considerable internal deterioration from cavities his oral pathologies may have been brought on by his grain heavy high car high carb diet and then dna analysis in february of 2012 revealed that he was lactose intolerant supporting the theory that lactose intolerance was still common at that time despite despite the increasing spread of agriculture and dairying his lungs were also examined endoscopically and were found to be blackened by soot, most likely due to his frequent proximity to open fires for warmth and cooking. Then for his skeletal details um, or his body itself, he had a total of 61 tattoos consisting of 19 groups of black lines ranging from one to three millimeters in width and seven to 40 millimeters in length. These include groups of parallel lines running uh, longitudinal along the, along the longitudinal axis of his body and to both sides of his lumbar spine, as well as a, a cruciform mark behind the right knee and on the right ankle. I mean, again, this is crazy. This is how well he was preserved, guys, that he, they, they were able to determine all of this. And then parallel lines around his left wrist. The greatest concentration of markings found on his legs, which together it showed 12, 12 groups of lines. And then a microscopic examination of samples collected from these, ta these tattoos revealed that they were created from pigment manufactured out of fireplace ash or soot. So that's how they did the, I'm using air quotes here, ink. Um, well, the pigment was then rubbed into, sorry, what? I was saying, these, the, the tattoos, that was arguably the most interesting thing to me, that these weren't either how we think of tattoos or why we think of tattoos, that what, what the anthropologists who've examined him seem to have concluded is these are all along certain areas of the body that are focused in both 
ancient through modern acupuncture and in modern treatment of arthritis, that they think that these lines were all a treatment for arthritis, that again, if it's somebody who's a shepherd is walking constantly without, you know, he's not walking around in some nice Nikes and, and Dr. Scholl's insoles, but they found that how they did it too was cutting lines into the skin and then rubbing the soot in where we think of injecting ink with a needle. And so this must have been some kind of early treatment for pain management. And there's also and some was, on the stomach that they think are connected to this whipworm he had, that if he was having stomach pain, but if it's focused around joints and and it, it also shows things, that he was repeatedly tattooed in some of the same locations, which would indicate yeah. you know, I didn't I did not know that you I, I was I was kind of wondering if maybe it was for something like that, but it's it's interesting because I think that it's probably safe to assume that, especially given the fact that there was repeated treatments on certain areas is you have something that's chronic, like arthritis or, you know, pain, then it would make sense. They would continue to treat the same area. And so it's, early, early, early medics, medicine, early treatment. Oh yeah. I mean, it's fascinating to me as a classicist that, you know, we like to, to, I don't know, primatize these early people where people are people and people suffering from chronic pain were going to find any way they could to deal with it. And some of these, you know, natural or homeopathic treatments are older than we think about. What, so, what I think is really cool too, going back to what you said, how you, you said it mimics like, you know, acupuncture, acupressure. Etsy lived 2000 years before the first known use of acupuncture in China. Yeah. 2,000 years. That's insane, right? And it's um, and comparable, it, oddly, to some of the mummies that we found in Egypt, where tattooing is one of the earliest things humans did to their bodies for decoration. Piercings and tattooings are nothing new. But it's it's fascinating. Some of the things you find, I remember you know, learning that back in the day that even like the Incas were doing primitive brain surgery by the time that, you know, colonists get there and, or not colonists, but, you know, colonizers and imperialists. It's, that's insane. I mean, it's crazy. It's absolutely that, crazy. So I, yeah, with, again, with copper tools. And speaking of just what we're talking about copper for dating, the copper age is this kind of narrow band that's really a transition period from the late Neolithic age, kind of the latest part of the Stone Age, before we get into the Bronze Age. And we're thinking Bronze Age, we're talking Mycenaean Greece, where it's like Trojan War is kind of, if that helps kind of date what we mean by Bronze Age. And because bronze is an alloy of copper and tin, it's when people started working with copper that then they ended up making alloys of bronze and bronze was a, you know, harder, stronger, more usable metal for practical purposes and tools and weapons. So we're talking early, early human history here. I mean, this is, if, if we're thinking Etsy, this is before the pyramids, before Stonehenge. Oh, I like that you're doing, yeah, put it, yeah, put it into perspective. I think that that's 
it's almost un, it's almost unfathomable how long ago it was. Yeah, this is true prehistory, which makes it fascinating to get into the minutia of knowing, okay, we know the last meals this man ate. We know height and weight, short king at 5'3", 110. We know exactly what he had and some of his items like he was working on making a longbow the arrows were crafted the quiver was was there and the bowstring was ready and he was found with a a not fully shaped and fashioned longbow we know this would have been a project he was working on we know oh my god it's okay guys the cat is they just they want to be in and they want to be out it's fine. This is a lighter uh, so, episode, so we're okay with it. Yeah, but we can even know, you know, genetic history of this man and where we, they, they, you know, one of the, the 2023 study was talking about how he would have been genetically predisposed to type 2 diabetes and heart disease, yep. but because of diet and lifestyle, he wasn't suffering from those. But we can say this was, you know, a man who lived a hard life taking care of of his flock most likely in pain and was seeking and receiving regular treatment for it that was sick multiple times in the six months before he died. You know, teeth were all busted with cavities. Um, one of the things I thought was really interesting was there's a whole debate about his shoes that he had these shoes that were two different kinds of leather, like thicker, harder, or tougher leather on the bottom and softer leather on the top with almost like a built-in sock of grass. And there's actually one uh, Italian company that was trying to purchase the rights to recreate and sell similar ones. They look kind of like Ugg boots. But then there's an argument of whether these were actually shoes or whether they were the snowshoes that what some people thought was a backpack where it was like a wicker frame and some skin, some animal skin, that uh, later archaeologists were arguing that this maybe was not a backpack at all, but this would have been a wicker frame to attach to the shoes as snowshoes. And then well, this you know, skin could have been some kind of a like head or face covering. Well, let's, let's circle back. I want to circle back to the shoes in a minute. So let's talk, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about his clothes and shoes. Okay. Um, because I think that all of this stuff is very interesting because again, it's, you didn't have mass production, you know, you, you didn't. So, you know, we know how like Native Americans did things. We know how Vikings did things, but this is thousands of years before them. So I, I, I find that fascinating. So he wore he wore a cloak made of woven glass, gra glass, grass, um, cloak, and a coat, a belt, a pair of leggings, and loincloth, and shoes, all made of leather of different skins, like you said, animal skins. He wore a bearskin cap. And a leather chin with a leather chin strap. The shoes were waterproof and wide, seemingly designed for walking across the snow, as you said. They were constructed using bear skin for the soles, deer hide for the top panels, and a netting made of tree bark. Soft grass, like you said, went around the foot and in the shoe and functioned almost like modern day socks. 
The coat, belt, leggings, and loincloth were constructed of vertical stri strips of leather sewn together um, with uh, sinew. His belt had a pouch sewn into it that contained a cache of useful items like a scraper, a drill, a flint flake, a bone, all, uh, which again, all very cool. How, I mean, these tools, how they made them. And they dried fungus. And they said, you were talking about buying the rice. So there was actually uh, the, uh, the Bada Shoe Museum uh, has a replica of it. And basically, they took his shoes, a Czech academic reproduced them. And he said that because the shoes are actually quite complex, this particular academic who, I guess, does his specialty is shoes, I guess, um, is convinced that even 5,300 years ago, people had the equivalent of a cobbler who made shoes for other people. And the, the reproductions were found to constitute um, excellent footwear that it was reported uh like you said, the Czech company offered to purchase the rice to sell them. However, a more recent hypothesis by a British archaeologist is that the shoes were actually the upper part of snowshoes, like you said, uh, and that the item is being interpreted as part of a backpack is actually the wood frame netting. So that's what that's what you were saying. Yeah. The, and I mean, again, reminding that the, like the specialization of labor goes back to even before we think of as, you know, civilized society with like permanent agricultural societies even in a small semi-nomadic community you would still have the person who makes the good shoes the person who makes the good tools because if everybody tries to make everything for themselves that's all you know you doing that project for the first time versus the one person that this is again pretty pretty complex well constructed gear yeah and by the way we are going to get into the the details of the murder but i feel like it's very important to have this background because it's it's very interesting again you're looking at the details the evidence if you will from 5300 years ago and it's so there's it's vast which is really i think fascinating and going to what you said a second ago yeah bartering and trading and and buying that's that's older than written history, you know, and we don't know this. This is just me being very speculative, but like, let's we, obviously it's believed that um, Etsy was a, was a coppersmith, at least whether it was full-time part. I mean, he believes a chef, but also dabbled with, with coppersmithing. So you don't know, maybe he, maybe he traded somebody, you know, some copper work for shoes. You, you, you just don't know because that's what they would do. If you, if you didn't have money, you would take the skills that you have and you would trade it for the skills that somebody else had. That's just what you did. Uh, the leather loincloth and hide coat were made from sheepskin. And they were able to even use genetic analysis on his clothing, which is, again, it's just crazy. And it showed that the sheep species was nearer to modern domestic European sheep than to wild sheep, which I guess would probably indicate shepherding and probably his own, his own sheep, maybe. Um, the items were made from the skins of at least four animals. Part of the coat was made from domesticated goat belonging to a mitochondrial um, uh, haplogroup, which is a common female ancestor, I guess, of the goat that inhabits Central Europe today. The coat was made of several animals from two different species and was stitched together using hides. The leggings were made from domesticated goat leather. Uh, a similar set of 5,000-year-old leggings was discovered in Switzerland that were also made from goat leather. His shoelaces were made from Europe the European genetic population of cattle. The quiver was made from wild roe deer. 
the fur hat was made from uh, a brown bear, which lives in the region today. And basically, uh, according to the side, uh, writing in the Journal of Scientific Reports, researchers from Ireland and Italy reported that their analysis of his clothing's mitochondrial DNA was extracted from nine fragments from nine fragments from six of his garments, including the loincloth and fur cap. So I'll tell you what, let's take a quick break and we will be right back. Hey there, are you part of the 26% of millennials and Gen Z navigating the complexities of going no contact with a family member? Picture this, your kids are growing up and inevitably the questions start coming. How do you handle those tough conversations? Well, we've got your back. Introducing Boundaries, the groundbreaking new book that helps you navigate the delicate balance between explaining no contact and instilling the importance of boundaries. Follow the journey of a little girl who, just like your little ones, starts questioning why certain family members are absent. Boundaries empowers kids with the understanding of limiting toxic influences and the importance of setting strong, healthy boundaries. So if you're part of that 26%, this book is your go-to guide. Packed with a powerful message and adorable illustrations, it's a must-have tool in your parenting arsenal. So are you ready to order? Head over to justinontiktok.com and keep an eye out for the pop-up. Or find the direct link in the podcast description because parenting is an art and we've got the brush you need to paint a happy, healthy family picture. And we're back. And so let's talk about the tools and equipment that were found on Etsy. Um, do you want to take that or you want me to take that? Sure. Um, they found an interesting copper axe with a U handle. And unlike axes that we think about, it's almost like the letter L, like hard right angle, wooden, wooden handle made from U wood. But the blade or the head on this is almost pure copper. As Justin said before, 99.7% copper. And this is about, the, the head is about four inches long, really kind of narrow. Again, visualize capital L. But what's interesting is the copper in the axe came from Southern Tuscany. And if that's, we're pushing 250 or more miles south. I mean, Southern Tuscany, if we're talking right up on the border with Austria and Italy up in the Alps and Southern Tuscany being, you know, Florence or below, I mean, that's two to 300 miles south. And if this is, again, somebody that all evidence indicates was lived a pretty isolated lifestyle up in the mountains, and they saw that based on genetic markers, not similar to other Italians and more closely connected to the Anatolian immigrants. So it seems that he probably didn't go very far. So it makes it a very interesting case of where did this axe come from? Either where did he get the copper to make this axe or where did he get the axe? Um, also had a knife, a quiver of arrows, um, some a bowstring, 
a tool they assume may have been for sharpening arrows. Um, also had some two birch baskets, some berries, and then two different species of mushrooms strung together with leather, with leather. And if they were kept like this, some archaeologists assume this might have been for medicinal purposes. Um, unclear which, but again, as we've talked about, our boy Otsi was was pretty busted at this point. Between yeah, you know cavities in his teeth, whipworm in his stomach, arthritis, um, arthritis three three major illnesses in the last six months and as we'll get to later some pretty recent wounds so that's foreshadowing and, oh, and yeah. to add add to what you said so they they found the dagger they found an in scraper as well small flake arrowhead um i guess it says arrowhead 14 and arrowhead 12 and a borer they uh also the quiver had 14 arrows with them um Viburnum, viburnum and dogwood shafts, two of the arrows which were broken were tipped with flint and had um, stable, let's call it fletching, but stabilizing fins while the other 12 were unfinished and untipped, indicating what you said earlier, perhaps a project that he was working on. Or he used the other ones that he had and he was just making more. Uh, as well as, uh, an, like you said, the identified tool, but the unfinished you longbow that he had which was about 72 inches long so he had all of that with him too and again 72 inches long for somebody who's five foot three that's a big ass bow the when we talk about the invention of the longbow that really turns the tide in british military history we're talking battle bigger than him or 12th century this is three thousand years before then before the british you know mowing down french heavy cavalry at agincourt um, as you know, you can go back to the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament and there's nothing new under the sun. All these things have been here and continue to be recycled throughout human history, including, you know, well, weaponry. You would maybe know this, but this bow is taller than him. Oh yeah. That's what I'm talking about. If he's five foot three, that's 63 inches. And this bow now, is 10 inches taller than that. you've got a 72-inch bow, that's almost a foot taller. Now, if it's 72 inches while straight and then bent back, if it's actually strung and bent, it would probably be about his height. But again, that's a bow that is the it's height big bow. of the user. And so do you, here's the question. Do you think that maybe it was a project that he was trading or selling to somebody else? That is a Could great he have used? Question. Could also, he have used the bow his size or bigger than him? Um, I mean, you know, it you have to it has to be enough that if you're holding, you know, handle end out, you're not dragging it on the floor. But yeah, you could use this. One of the reasons, I mean, the British longbow was so huge. Um, can I go off on a side historical digression here? Uh, you know, go for it. All right. So changing the bring Mark on by and the origin of the middle on. finger gesture. I know. I okay. So I believe I know the origin of the middle finger gesture, but I don't know if what I know is true. So I can tell you, or you can just tell me. So in in what in all of the you know centuries long conflicts between the the British and the French, 
the French were dominant for a, a long time, mostly because of their heavy cavalry, which was the equivalent of like a tank. You know, you've got a war horse, like a big old Clydesdale, wearing hundreds of pounds of armor with a fully armored knight on top. It could just charge straight through a, a line of infantry and, and break them every time. Well, the British countered by inventing the longbow, which could shoot through an arrow through a horse at 300 yards. Now, shooting an arrow through a horse is kind of crazy. But if you could then counter by just having so much force that you could punch through plate mail and flesh, heck, you could shoot a longbow through a tree. And at the Battle of Agincourt, a bunch of unarmed, unarmored British, you know, starving British peasants essentially mowed down the whole French cavalry using longbows and had them, they picked the fight in this muddy field where the cavalry got all, you know, stuck in the mud. And afterwards, for a while, what the French soldiers would do when they captured any of the British, they would cut off their middle finger because you need to have all the fingers on your right hand to pull back a longbow because the draw force is so strong. And they found you could not do that without a middle finger. The rest of the fingers in the hand weren't enough to do it. So whenever the French went by, the British would go show them the middle finger to just be like, ha ha ha, still got my middle finger. I could still mow you down. So I heard a version of that. Um, the, the version that I had heard was that when captured, they would cut off the middle finger. And so that the, the French would start waving their middle finger this, this is the version that I heard, but this is back in like high school before we had real internet and we just listened to what people said and didn't fact check it. But, um, and they, and that's also how the term like, fuck you came about supposedly, at least that's, I don't know if this is true. You can, you can answer all this because they would hold the middle finger and be like, pluck you. And that turned into because of the accident. I don't know if that's true. That is what I've heard. I've, I've never fact checked that. That could all be bullshit. I mean, that's translated into. It's the same thing, but it comes back to either like, ha, 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 I still have my middle fingers and you don't. But the reason they were cutting off those middle fingers was because of the longbow. Because yeah. a minimally trained person where the amount of training that went into being a knight was, you know, a lifetime. And then all the wealth and resources that go into owning a horse, owning the armor, owning the weapons, being trained in riding and fighting on horseback, where you could just hand a random peasant a longbow and, you know, give them a couple weeks to train and they could be brutally efficient in combat. But you need middle finger or middle finger on your right hand. You do well. That's what I, I don't know if the plucky thing, but you know, with their outrageous French accents, they might have, you know, that was Monty Python, right there, by the way. And uh, anyways, all right, well, yeah, let's take a quick question. break. You can yeah, cut it out digression. if you don't like it. Do what? You can cut the digression if you don't like it. I'm gonna keep it. All right, but uh, we're gonna keep. Well, let's take a break though, and we'll come back and talk about the murder. Ooh. <laughs> Hey there, are you part of the 26% of millennials and Gen Z navigating the complexities of going no contact with a family member? Picture this, your kids are growing up and inevitably 
the questions start coming. How do you handle those tough conversations? Well, we've got your back. Introducing Boundaries, the groundbreaking new book that helps you navigate the delicate balance between explaining no contact and instilling the importance of boundaries. Follow the journey of a little girl who, just like your little ones, starts questioning why certain family members are absent. Boundaries empowers kids with the understanding of limiting toxic influences and the importance of setting strong, healthy boundaries. So if you're part of that 26%, this book is your go-to guide. Packed with a powerful message and adorable illustrations, it's a must-have tool in your parenting arsenal. So are you ready to order? Head over to justinontiktok.com and keep an eye out for the pop-up. Or find the direct link in the podcast description. Because parenting is an art, and we've got the brush you need to paint a happy, healthy family picture. And we're back. So now let's get into it. Let's talk about who killed Etsy the Iceman and why. So again, 5,300 years ago, we have all of this evidence. And when it happened, they called a senior police detective from Germany, Chief Inspector Alexander Horn of the Munich Police Department who is also the head of behavioral analysis with the Bavarian police. He was asked to work on it. He was asked if he works on cold cases and his response was, yeah, I do. And typically the cold case that he works on is 20, maybe 30 years old. And they asked him to work on one that is 5,300 years old. And initially he didn't think that he was going to be able to help. He thought the body, the body would probably be in bad condition, but what he learned was that the body was in perfect condition and better. It actually better condition than some murders that he works on in present day. Like the body was in much more intact than somebody who might've been killed, you know, a few months prior. And so he goes and visits the crime scene. He's able to draw an extensive research that was done over the last 25 years, uh, which includes detailed analysis of his stomach contents and the injuries to his body. And he initially saw it after, after seeing that, that this looks like a murder. They also believe that he was ambushed, caught by surprise. They believe that he was shot from a far distance, maybe 30 meters, which is about 100 feet, uh, which is about how far he was found from the border, by the way. Um, anyways, but that would not be considered a close contact killing. It would be a distance killing. And they feel like, based on the way his body was, that he was quite relaxed up on the glacier just before he was shot. His own bow wasn't even ready for use, meaning that they believe he he wasn't anticipating anything. He was probably just, you know, hanging out. About a half hour before he was killed, he was having a rest, having quite a heavy lunch or meal. Um, it doesn't seem like he was in any type of rush or fleeing. Uh, and then, then another crucial clue came from an injury on his right hand, a wound that he had received one to two days before his death, probably during a fight. Um According to Detective Horn, the injury was something that they defined as a classic active defense wound. That would be like if somebody threatened you with a knife or stabbed you, you would grab into the knife and try to push it away, like that kind of a thing. Um, there were no other defense injuries, and so he believes that Etsy won the initial fight, which probably took place down in the valley before, before he left. Um, they believe that 
the killing that happened up on the glacier where he was well not quite where he was found which we'll get to that but the killing that ultimately took what took his life the killing itself was probably a continuation of that fight that happened a day and a half before uh, whoever his killer was knew that they were unlikely to win in a hand-to-hand combat um so they believe that the killer probably stalked him and followed him stealthily up the mountain now you gotta think so this guy i mean mark Five foot three, 110 pounds, 45 years old, bad shape with whip for him. This guy was scrappy. I told you, short king. Also, yeah, he was- even more DNA analysis have claimed. Now, again, there's different studies in this, but they found traces of blood from at least four other people on his gear. If we're talking about I again, missed that. No joke. Yeah, one on his knife blood from two different people on the same arrowhead and a fourth on his coat. So this is somebody who now we can argue with, with how this, a knife may not have been used in, in a killing. This could have been used in somebody else's using a knife and, you know, cuts themselves or even, you know, any number of things, but two different people's blood on the same arrowhead. That means shot successfully removed which you don't take an arrow back out of somebody who didn't stay down then shot into a second person and removed again and what the the blood on the coat is kind of interesting would this have been it was over the by the shoulder so is this like he was carrying somebody else on a shoulder this almost to me seems like there was some kind of maybe this wasn't just a he killed somebody like a single kind of blood feud where he shoots somebody, then their brother, neighbor, cousin, friend comes and and follows him and gets him back. But I wonder if this could have been kind of early, you know, tribal conflict, maybe even bordering on war, if he's got four different people's blood on him. And they're they're sure it's blood, it's human blood, not animal. I missed this, so I didn't see this. Uh, I mean, again, what I found was DNA analysis taken in two thousand three, which isn't as is earlier than you know the all the full sequencing was twenty twenty three, and that seems to be the most comprehensive with the best technology. But four other humans, traces of blood from four other humans on his gear. Well, I think that that's, I missed that. So I'm going to need to read up on that just for my own edification. But that's fascinating. The Cambridge um, World History of Violence cited it as an evidence of prehistoric warfare, the 2020 edition of the I mean, Cambridge war, World war, History of Violence. I mean, war, war is as old as time, too. So, you know. Yeah. And war, yeah. you know, we have to think, you know, might have been much smaller scale. But this oh, was. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we're going beyond scrappy to this is <laughs> this is somebody who was both a a you know herder, a smelter, a warrior. He was lethal. Yeah, nobody wore one hat in an ancient community because there hadn't gotten to a point where you can specialize to the point of doing only one thing, but there was certainly you know, a degree of specialization when you look at his his weapons, his clothing. 
but yeah, it makes from a really mysterious. I mean, this guy was killed with a full belly. Like he had eaten within two hours and eaten another meal within eight hours. This was not somebody who was lost on a mountain and died from exposure. And, and by the way, just for everybody who's listening in the background, if you can hear that, um, nobody is getting murdered at Mark's house. He has a beautiful bloodhound named Manny who is who who likes to talk. Yes. So uh, I heard a truck. Nobody's getting murdered. That's either the mail truck or the garbage truck. And either to let yeah, them know. Either way. Yeah, no murder. Letting them know. No murder. Um, so the area going back to where he was found, the glacier that he was found on, it's a very remote area and not a place you're just going to, you know, run into somebody on, you know, happenstance, right? You're just, you're not gonna be like, Oh, two people passing. It's very, very unlikely. So yeah. then that leads to the question, who was the offender and what were his motives? And I think this is where we get real interesting. This is where all that foreshadowing to the ax comes back. Okay. Something like a copper blade axe and some of the other gear that he had. I mean, again, you couldn't go to the store and just buy things. If you were going to make something, it took a lot of time to do. It would have been real easy to take all of this stuff and sell it. So it wasn't a robbery. Because if it was, all of this stuff would have been taken. So it's speculated that it was probably due to some strong like personal emotion, like hate or jealousy or revenge, something like that. Obviously they can't tell you which one it was. Yeah. Um, Even in war, yeah. you would loot the enemy. I mean, yeah, exactly. Area, that's the, that's the classic thing. They, even in modern war, you loot the enemy weapons and armor. Yeah. Even in modern 20, 20, 20th and 21st century war, you, you loot the enemy. So, you know, they definitely would have back then when things were actually, you know, really difficult to get. And if he's got um, some real nice shoes and gear. Yeah. And a real nice axe. Yeah. 99% copper, you know, almost 100% copper. Um, so they're never really you know, going to be able to find it. So they there were a couple wounds as well. Um, they were able to tell. So one, you had one that was fresh like a couple of days before, but then you had some older wounds that you could tell were from like, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but like a week, a few weeks before or a month before or something like that. Um, and so, so what's kind of believed or one of the theories I should say is that um, this guy got into an altercation. Um, maybe he knew people were after him. Maybe he didn't packed up all his shit and was like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to head out for a while. And started heading up this glacier, was followed, and was killed. Now, one thing that, um, and I've lost my notes here, so I have to go this off the top of my head here. I forgot to put this in my notes. Uh, they don't well, They don't believe that where he was found was where he was killed. Did you read about that, Mark? Yeah, there have been um, also just what you were saying. They found bruises and cuts on his hands, wrist, and chest, as well as cerebral trauma. So blow to the head. Now these. But they are believe all... the blow to the head might have been a final, like a double tap, like let's yeah. shoot him and make sure he's dead. And and the the wound that you were talking about with his hand is right by the base of the thumb, where again, like somebody's a, attacking you, and you reach out to kind of grab the weapon. What they're talking about is a a defensive wound right there, at kind of the the base of the thumb between the thumb and the index finger. But yeah, there's some some debate because. 
some people think he died at a lower altitude than he was found at and was buried at a higher altitude. Um, there's a spot above him where he was found that has been interpreted as a stone burial mound, but oh. others, other people, especially later anthropologists, have said that this doesn't necessarily mean that there that that was there a pile of rocks isn't always a burial mound, and but there was a pile of rocks. Argument, yeah, sometimes it's just a pile of rocks, and up in the mountains, rocks pile up because you get rock slides and things. Um, but one person's idea was that maybe the body was brought up to this higher point in the mountains for kind of ceremonial burial purposes, and then it was moved with each thaw cycle, where again, you know, the ice would thaw and there would be rains and sliding and slipping in the spring. And then it would refreeze again. But later, uh, Klaus Ogle of the University of Innsbruck uh, thinks that that could cause this to to move down. But what they, but what he, he and Albert Zink later biological anthropologist argue was that the body didn't really show evidence of if it was getting dragged in rock slides and thaws there would be all kinds of the evidence of that evidence of that and they also found that there are intact blood clots in the arrow wound so again, you've got an arrowhead in there and partially sticking out. That would keep getting moved around and jostled. So it, I, I think that theory, the evidence and analysis would, would make that look less likely. Either way, it's a violent death. There was an early yeah. theory that this was some kind of ceremonial, ritualistic sacrifice killing because of similar uh, men found in bogs in the UK. But again, that that doesn't, I think that's people kind of bringing their own theory to the party more than just following the evidence. Yeah, it, seems, really it seems from what I've read that this body hasn't moved very much because of how intact the skin is and the wounds are. And it would have had to have stayed frozen for the vast majority of the time for that to happen as well. Otherwise it would have deteriorated significantly more. Yeah. So yeah, it would be let, in way worse condition if it thawed and refroze multiple times. So when we come back, we'll talk about a little bit more in depth on his, his death and how it was violent and then the theory, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Hey there, are you part of the 26% of millennials and Gen Z navigating the complexities of going no contact with a family member? Picture this, your kids are growing up and inevitably the questions start coming. How do you handle those tough conversations? Well, we've got your back. Introducing Boundaries, the groundbreaking new book that helps you navigate the delicate balance between explaining no contact and instilling the importance of boundaries. Follow the journey of a little girl who, just like your little ones, starts questioning why certain family members are absent. 
boundaries empowers kids with the understanding of limiting toxic influences and the importance of setting strong, healthy boundaries. So if you're part of that 26%, this book is your go-to guide. Packed with a powerful message and adorable illustrations, it's a must-have tool in your parenting arsenal. So are you ready to order? Head over to justinontiktok.com and keep an eye out for the pop-up. Or find the direct link in the podcast description. Because parenting is an art, and we've got the brush you need to paint a happy, healthy family picture. All right, and we are back. So let's get into the nitty gritty of how he died and how it was a violent death. So in 2001, when they did x-rays and CT scans, they revealed that he had an arrowhead lodged in his left shoulder when he died. There was also a matching small tear on his coat. And the discovery of the arrowhead prompted researchers to theorize that he died from blood loss from that wound, which, by the way, even under today's modern medical techniques, if they had what we have today available, then this the way he was shot would have still probably been fatal. Oh yeah. Through so whoever shot him scapula yeah. into the into yeah. the rib cage right next to the lung. Yeah, that's a that's a kill Got, shot. Whoever shot him was a was a good shot. Because again, Four it was from about a hundred hundred feet away. So you know, good shot. Further research found that arrows, the arrow shaft had been removed before death, meaning that they came in, I guess, just broke it off. Um left it in there and a close examination of the body found bruises and cuts to the hands, wrist and chest and the cerebral trauma, as you mentioned earlier, indicative to a blow to the head. One of the cat, which basically the theory on that is that they shot him, went over before he died, pulled, broke the arrow off in him and then hit him over the head with something to basically, like I said, a double tap, uh, make sure that he was good and dead. One of the cuts, somebody really, somebody really didn't like this dude. Um, one of the cuts to the base of his thumb reached down to the bone, uh, but had had uh, no time to heal before his death. Um, and currently the theory is that he bled to death after the arrow shattered the scapula and damaged the nerves and blood vessels before lodging near the lung. Uh, so that's kind of what they, what they believe. Now, here's the thing to going back to the movement of his body in that, uh, Detective Horn basically theorized that the position that he was found in, like his arms were sprawled out, the way that he was, the way that his body was found does not indicate, basically doesn't, doesn't coincide with the wound. Like if you were shot in the back of the arrow, the way he would have likely landed does not match up to the way that he was found, indicating that he probably was dragged. We know that they went and broke the arrow off. We know that they wouldn't hit him over the back of the head with something. At the same time, if this was, you know, you still got in trouble for for murder back then you know and so it would make sense that you know whether it was a revenge kill or somebody could have come after whoever did this to go hide the body drag it higher up cover it in ice where you know it doesn't really defrost you know thaw out or you know defrost up there and and so that's i feel is a very likely theory and i know we touched on this let me switch gears real quick a little bit more too we touched on the fact that lightly that hey this is probably not a robbery do you want to talk about why they would have what the significance of the axe would have been had somebody taken it do you want to hit that i mean if if this was a recognizable weapon 
the the question is 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 this unique among you know axes in the area which is a question we can't really answer so clearly because we have such little evidence from literal prehistory um but what i found was interesting is that even though there were copper deposits in that area and there's other evidence of it i mean the fact that it's copper from so far away either means that they didn't know there was copper there which again means it's even more rare it's even more scarce so therefore even more valuable or there might have been some kind of a unique trade connection to get something from that far away but i i mean like justin said earlier if this was just a a robbery a simple killing you take the valuables so i i yeah i'm not sure where you're getting at but i think this this definitely you know adds more well, what i'm getting fact. what i'm getting at i'll i'll say what i'm getting at so what what i'm getting at and, and what i read so first of all this isn't this isn't today where you can go into a store i can go into home depot lowe's and i can see 50 different of the exact same axes on the shelf at my Lowe's. I can go to the Lowe's near you, see the exact same axe on the shelf, 50 of them by them, that you didn't have that. So in a small village, you probably only had a handful, if not one or two people that would have the skill set to be able to forge an axe. On top of that, all of these were individually and handmade. And if it and something like an axe is going to be a prized possession for the holder of it, because again, they own a handful of things, right? So if somebody's walking around the village with an axe, and I was like, that looks like Etsy, Etsy's axe. Again, nobody's getting murdered over at Mark's house, guys. Um, yeah. Etsy's axe. Somebody's gonna be like, well, what the hell happened to Etsy? How do you have his axe? Indicating that you were the person that killed him. Because uh, okay. again, there would not have been many people having it. And and I don't know if the shape to the axe was unique for the time period or unique to him. I've, you know, it's, it is a strange, when you think of an axe, it's not what you think of by today's standards. Yeah. I've seen other Native American included axes with that design, both, you know, Near Eastern, European, and Native American. So I know this was a pretty typical design because we think of like the big kind of, you know rounded blade but that takes a lot of metal to do and when you know the metal was so much harder to obtain and and work with that they used smaller blades so that i had led with i'm not sure how unique this is and there might have been you know him or another smith nearby that made at least enough of these that it wouldn't be immediately recognizable but it would be pretty suspicious well, if I may, too, if you are the coppersmith, okay, and you're making this axe for yourself, don't you think it's going to be better than the thing that you make for your neighbor? It's probably going to be your absolute best work because if you're trying to get somebody to trade you, you can pull out yours and say, look at what I'm able to do. Yeah. So his, so the coppersmith, again, whether it was just him or there were only a couple of them, because there, there wouldn't have been probably many of them who have that skill set and access to the materials, especially when those materials are coming from a couple hundred miles away. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I think that yeah. that part of it. And so 
that's why they left everything, you know, because they, they, and that stuff would have been very, very valuable to sell, to fence, to whatever, to use themselves. The arrows all would have been valuable because again, it took a lot of time. Do you by chance know, because I know you know history, how long did it take on average to make an arrow? Do you know? Uh, I mean, that depends on so many factors, depending on what you're making it out of. If you're talking about just like a flint arrowhead, even then you're probably talking, you know, multiple hours. Okay, I'm, I, okay. so in the 16th century, so 1500s, it took 50 minutes to cut the shaft, 30 minutes for fletching, 15 minutes for attaching the arrowhead, and 25 minutes to make the arrowhead itself. That was the average. So you're talking an hour and 10, two, yeah, an hour and 10 minutes per arrow. Yeah. So back in the 1500s. So before then, yeah, I I think it depends that the arrowhead I feel like would be the real X factor because if you don't have something where you have like a mold you can mass produce them, it's going to take a lot longer. But I mean the fact and the that tools this makes makes you wonder is this like shame or guilt at the end of this? Is this just somebody who was so angry that they weren't even thinking about valuables? It was just about revenge. It's a, it's a fascinating case study to look at something this old and to bring in all the tools of modern forensic anthropology and, you know, criminology and to still, you know, obviously we don't know. It's like, oh, you know, Bootsy's neighbor Bob did it. But the fact that we can even get this close to kind of start speculating. I mean, somebody could, you know, write a story with, out of that premise. Absolutely. And I think that, that narrative. I, and I think that you get really close. I, you know, you're never going to know, like you said, was it his neighbor, Bob, who did it? Um, you're never going to know the, the exact reason why. Was it they got to some fight? Was he just a, was he a bad person that had to be taken out? You're never going to know that. But this is as close, I think, as you're going to get to solving a murder like this. And the fact that they can even get this close for something that happened so long ago, to me, is really quite, quite amazing. Now, what I, I think it would be cool. I don't know if they've done this or not. I think it would be cool to run um, his DNA through uh, the familial DNA and see if there's any living relatives. They did. I think oh, they did found they? 19. Did they? Yeah. Well, you take that one because I want to learn. Yeah, uh, in October 2013, they uh, they ran his paternal lineage through, and there are now 19 people that they said may share a common ancestor with Otzi. That's that's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Well, I think that pretty much concludes this episode. Do you have anything else you want to add? No, just thanks for having me. Sorry, uh, just allergies plus pets. Mostly that's the reason for the allergies. So a little bit of extra noise today, but always a pleasure to be on the show. I like having you on the show. And you guys can see why he's what Mark is just a wealth of knowledge. And um, he's kind of fun to have on this thing. So this will probably not be the last time that he does this. And with us, but uh, I appreciate you coming on to talk about this. And uh, for everybody else who's listening, 
uh, one, buy my book, but two, um, which you can link in the bio, but have, you know, great Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Festivus for the rest of us, you know, whatever you guys celebrate, have a great season, stay safe. And we will see you guys next month for the January 1st episode.